Right, we're midway through the series. It's Emergency on Planet Sport with Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. I suppose you could say we're on to the back nine. We're talking golf in this episode and we're off to the dramatic east coast of Scotland because this is an impact of climate change on sport that really I needed to see for myself. It's a wonderful golf course, one of the most beautiful golf courses I've ever seen, actually. And what I saw, what I witnessed, really was quite startling. We're going to hear about that, but we're also going to hear what the sport of golf is doing to address the climate emergency. This episode is the hole-in-one. It's a hole-in-one, but this one really matters. Not the single shot win, it's the wave that batters. At the coast, at the rocks, at the course, rising seas are feasting on fairways, devouring our teas. The drive is ferocious. Approach with due caution. The slice through the land creates coastline contortion. Chipping away, year by year, day by day, putting at risk institutions we play. Mindless of centuries, cruel though it sounds, these links are in danger, soon out of bounds. It's a hole in one, but not as we know it. A hole in our soul and a whole chance to blow it. So do we just wait? Let the seas have us dormy. Move us inland, homogenized stories. Maybe there's much play. A comeback of sorts, a collective ambition to continue with sports that rely on these challenges, windswept and cruel, Generations have battled these sea-battered rules. So we're with you, Montrose, and your friends by the coast. Make those holes in one count when you need them the most. My first memory of playing golf at Montrose is how tough it was, and it still is tough. It's a great, great test of golf, and uh, we're very fortunate. The, the, uh, as you said, the waves crashing behind you. If it's a good day, you'll get dolphins out in, in the bay here, and a very good day, you'll get humpback whales. It, it really is a nature reserve. We're very fortunate here. We've got a great golf course. It's a beautiful morning. Hi, I'm John Adams, Montrose Golf Links, representing their erosion group. Fifth oldest golf course in the world. I mean, it's a true Lynx golf course, one that everybody should really come and try and play at some point in their lives. First time I played the course was uh, the late 80s, and uh, there's been massive change since then. Uh, you know, we're standing on the second tee here now, and uh, back in the 80s, the, the dunes here would have been uh, sort of 40 metres further out, maybe 50 metres further out. And now we are where we are, we're, we've got a real, real problem. A more famous golfing coastline, it's surely hard to find. St Andrews, Carnoustie, Montrose, all within 27 miles as the Osprey flies. So what's happened here? From 1900 to 1970, the Montrose coastline lost 13 metres. That's about 18 centimetres a year. It then lost 47 metres over the next four decades. And in the 10 years since, 20 metres lost two metres per year. The trend, as obvious as it is alarming. I needed to see this for myself. They're mostly good golfers, the guys here. They have to be. The wind can, can howl in here. So as we move to the top of the second tee, 
you can hear the sea, the North Sea crashing into the rock armour just down beneath the tee. And I mean, literally, just beneath the tee. Well, looking round to the north now uh, from, the, from the second tee, uh, it's pretty much a bit of, well, you could say, devastation. We've got out-of-bounds posts which we've moved earlier this year. They've been moved again. We'll just take a walk up here and uh, not get too near the edge, that's for sure. So what you've got here, looking at the top of this piece of dune, you've got the shearing effect. That's what happens. You see what I'm saying? You get the, the, the tide comes in, knocks a meter off. It's just like a chopping board. See, this whole thing's going to go. The whole lot goes. Certainly the, the outer bit there, Jonathan, you can see it's got a drop on it already. They're lucky to still have this second tee. They know that. They're very live to the possibility of having to move it very soon. That's because they've already done that to two other tees on this course. So as I walk down the second hole, I'm walking through rough at the moment, a tiny slither of rough to the right-hand side of the fairway. And the reason it's a tiny slither is because very soon it's all going to be gone. This is, this is a real lynx hole when the wind howls. This, this hole, by the way, back in 2006, was moved about 30 metres inland. But what you're walking on here now was fairway. Wow. And, the, and, and an extra 20 yards to, to, to the right uh, on the beach was fairway. This, this was all, it's been reclaimed. That, that's the level of erosion we have just because of the tide coming in here. You can have a look at the edge if you want to have a quick look at it, but just be careful. And as I come right up perilously close to the edge of the cliff here, I look down and what I see is frightening, it's heartbreaking because there's just clumps of turf, land, pieces of Scotland, eaten alive, lying left for dead on this beautiful beach. It's gone. That's Iron McFarlane. These guys have played here for 50, 60 years. Just love the golf. Ali's what, in his 80s? Yeah, the guy at the front here. Okay, away from the edge into the fairway now, but still only 10 metres or so away from the coastline. Things are about to get a lot worse. Come with me. This is one of our iconic holes here. It's a beautiful uh, plateau, table plateau green. <laughs> this was the, the first, the third medal tee going back 15 months ago. But don't stand too close to the edge because there's a heck of a big crack there. I'll show you where that is at the moment next. But beyond this, there was another 15 metres of tea. The ladies' tea was beyond this. We put in a new third tea about four years ago, a double tea. Uh, again, that's possibly going to be at risk in the near future, which is frightening. That's, actually, we've lost more since last week. Oops, gee whiz. You see what I mean here? There's, there's the cracks. OK, tell us what you're seeing, Joe. That's been that's uh, dropped since last Wednesday, that there. Chunks of it, there's big chunks there. This is going to drop within the next one, two months, especially over the winter. We're coming to winter storms. Uh, it'll just go. We, we'll lose another two metres. Then it does it again. It'll do it then further south as well, where this signpost is, which we're going to be taking, taking out because otherwise the signpost is on the beach. Uh, we move the, again, then we move the out-of-bounds post in. So it's, it's, it's a gradual creep, but it's a gradual creep at two metres a year. We lost two metres here on the 14th of November this year, along this coastline, the whole coastline, two metres gone. just 
feels all wrong. Really, I'm really shocked. Really shocked by this. This is way worse than I thought. I mean, I'd read about this. I'd read about what was happening here. And that's why I knew I had to come and see it for myself. Because I, I couldn't believe some of the figures I was reading. I mean, two metres per year. That's what they say. If you look there, look, if you look at the, 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 the amount of turf that comes off in big hits, that's what, three or four metres square on the, on, on the bottom of the dunes? <laughs> it's just, it's unrelenting. And that's, the, that's all I can say, really. So I've arrived at this pathway. It's kind of part gravel, part sand. And I'm midway between the third tee and the third green. Uh, in this sort of no-man's land that you've got to cross over to make the green with your, your tee shot. And I, I can't figure out what this path is meant to be, w where it leads from, where it goes to. It's just a stretch of pathway. But John's just pointed me up here. Shall we take a look? This here was one... This, this, we're walking up now, This, believe it or not. This, this area you're coming to, this is the path from the, from the ladies' second tee and the gents tee. There it is. It's nothing. It's fresh air. It's a ski jump. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that. Isn't and wh it? Wh when was that the tea? When? Uh, two years ago. Two, three years ago. We stopped using it two, three years ago for safety reasons. It's like it's like walking the plank. It leads nowhere. There's, there's nothing left of it. Nothing. As I say, it's it's walk the plank. You walk up the path, and off it goes off the cliff face. What we're seeing is just a, a crumbling effect right the way through. Our, our, our biggest concern is, uh, is an onshore wind with a high tide. We are in real, real trouble. You can see the paddle waters down there, by the way. Just a matter of interest. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it's uh, off surface. I think that could be surface. There's a man at the moment walking his dog on this magnificent Montrose beach. He's walking right in the middle of the beach, which is probably 50, 60 metres in depth. His dog scurrying in front of him, wagging his tail. Beautiful times. What a great dog-walking beach. But he's walking parallel to this little strip of posts which have been plugged into the middle of the beach. So they sit there parallel to the sea and parallel to the coastline, and there must be 20 of them in a line. And the reason they've been put there is as a marker to illustrate where the coast used to be. They must be, they must be 30 metres from where I'm standing. And that's where the land was five years ago. Five years ago. Look, I mean, I'll be honest with you. This is, this is an issue which in the past I've paid attention to, but I haven't completely understood. It's something I've read about, something I've listened to, without a proper grasp on the, the urgency or the extent of the damage that we as humans are doing to this planet. That's why I wanted to come up here. That's why I wanted to see this for myself. It's a magnificent golf course. It's beautiful. You should see the greens. I'm a bit lost. I hope I'm sort of around about the fifth. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, so that's... You read the statistics and you read the reports of, oh, that bit of coastline lost half a metre in five years, and you think, oh, OK, well, half a metre in five years. But this is quicker than that. 
this is more damage, more urgently, quicker, faster, more worryingly. These T's are going to be gone when they've already moved. These greens are going to be gone. They've already moved. The whole course is going to be gone. The worry then is what's going to happen to the whole town of Montrose. We've been going on about this for six years, we've been talking and talking and talking, and we need to do something about it. Somebody's got to put their hand in the pocket. They were talking about European funding, and we'd maybe get our first bite of the cherry of a big chunk of cash, maybe, maybe in excess of £20 million for the look at the sand engine, but nobody's come forward and said, right, that is what we're going to do, guys. I understand the complexities. I, don't, I get that. You can't just go and throw money at something and find, oh, gee whiz, that didn't work. But we need to do something. We need to have a, a plan of attack that's going to be sustainable and long-term. And that's the, that's the bottom line. There are, there are environmental solutions we can do. We can look at uh, a sand engine offshore. That's been discussed. Whether that's going to get the nod or not, I don't know. It would be great to have a, a sand engine here. And really, for the money you've spoken about, it's maybe 25 million. Big, big money still. But if you can test the theory here, there are other super sites in Scotland which could then be looked at and benefit from it. So you become a bit of an expert in, in, in marine engineering. So there's, there's, a, there's a double benefit there, really. I hope just taking you over those few holes just gives you an indication of the danger to this golf course, but also to this town and this beautiful part of Scotland. It's, this isn't a four-year term for a, a political office. This is, this is forever. And that's the thing, they've got to start thinking on a forever basis, or at least a 50-year basis as to what it's worth. We're trying to save the environment so that we can see a bit of the natural world coming on the golf course. We have deer here, kestrels, ospreys occasionally off the coast there. I mean, it's brilliant. On the basin, they get ospreys every day coming and pick the salmon. The fishermen don't like it very much. Herons, I guess they get the herons on here as well. We've been talking about realignment at the golf course, manage retreats, but where the hell do you retreat to? But it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, you've got to think Montrose. I know golfers don't want to hear me say that because it's, it's, it's what they do. You know, some of these guys are just died in the wool. They want, they want to play the golf, and I get that. I want to play golf here. But there's a bigger picture, and the bigger picture has to be we have to look after Montrose. Well, thanks to all in Montrose. It was a memorable trip, a spectacularly beautiful part of the world. Now, this won't be an easy one to solve. It certainly won't be cheap. It will take investment, political will and collective ambition. First, let's look at that sand engine solution put forward by John Adams. What is it? Richard Black from ECIU can explain. Yeah, so the basic idea is you've got a stretch of land here where the waves are coming in, they're sort of sliding down the shore and they're taking away sand from the shore. So obviously what you can do and what is done in some places is simply to go back every year and chuck on a new load of sand, but it just gets eroded again. So the idea of a sand engine is you basically build out an artificial peninsula of sand into the sea and then Basically, as the waves come along, they will take some sand from this peninsula and they will take it down to the beaches that need replenishing. So you're building a kind of store there that nature is going to take away a little bit of um, each year and is going to put where you need it. 
there are some side benefits as well. It's it's it seems to be good for wildlife and so on, and you can build some recreational facilities behind it temporarily. Um, but that's the basic idea of the sand engine. Is it a proper solution though, or just sticking plaster? I think the main negative really is that only one of them has actually been built anywhere in the world, uh, the country where it was invented in, in the Netherlands, and it's, it's 10, years, uh, 10 years old in 2021. Um, so because of that, there's only really that limited experience to draw on. There have been a number of studies of the one in the Netherlands because it is the first, and it does seem to be working. The sand is going where it's supposed to go, broadly speaking. Um, and uh, But it, I think it's really too soon to tell, you know, how long it's actually going to last, whether it will give the multi-decadal uh, protection that was envisaged. I think, though, you know, sea level rise is going to continue under every kind of projection of climate change. And so um, if you've got something that's right close to the shoreline, it, it can never be a permanent solution. This It's going to buy you time and con- conceivably it could buy you a few decades. Of course, if you've got a, you know, a golf course there or some other valuable resource, that could be well worth it economically. But it's but it's certainly not going to be the once and for all solution. It is an issue for all of Lynx Golf. My name's Dom Goggins. I run the parliamentary group for renewable and sustainable energy. I work with the British Association for Sustainable Sport and I've written a couple of big reports on the impacts of climate change on sport. By definition, Lynx Golf is by the sea. Open venues are all by the sea. The Open Championship takes place by the sea. All of those golf courses in some way are threatened or will be affected by the impacts of climate change particularly rising sea levels and coastal erosion, the impact of extreme storms on the coastline. It is an existential problem in the long term for golf. In my lifetime, in our lifetimes, I think we'll see a dramatic difference unless we start to talk about this stuff and take this stuff a little bit more seriously. Climate change is an issue that is taken seriously across all age groups, but above all among young people, the same young people that golf as a sport is struggling to appeal to. And I think if golf as a sport is seen to be taking these issues seriously and seen to be taking a lead on these issues, then it's going to open the sport up in an emotional sense to people who aren't currently exposed to it. They can't see it on the television or they don't see it enough on the television. They don't have relatable heroes. There's not much about the game that has been made relatable to the younger generations, but... This is an issue, I think, where where golf can get some traction with those sections of the population. And if it can, it's a wonderful sport. It's it's a fantastic thing for young people to be able to do. And I think it's something that they can have an emotional connection with. It'd be great for the sport. Golf is taking this issue, I think, quite seriously. But at the moment, what we're seeing is lots of good work going on quite quietly and a big, looming existential threat that's not being talked about at all. So let's put that right with a sporting governing body not afraid to address this head-on. Realistic about threats, open to solutions. The governing body of golf outside the USA, the RNA. We need to work far harder at the communication side of things. I'm Steve Isaac. I'm Director of Sustainability at the RNA. It's the decision-makers at golf clubs. If they're not on board with this, then things just, just won't happen. It's a target audience uh, for participation in golf and for most other sports. 
And I think in sustainability, climate change, all the issues around that, we've got a topic that's of great interest to younger generations. And hopefully uh, a spin-off from that could be that we see greater interest in golf and what golf is doing around these subjects. First, though, the issue of coastal erosion. What does the RNA think about what's happening at Montrose and elsewhere? Well, the RNA is is concerned by this, and I think we're expressing this um, through investment in research into coastal management through our Golf Course 2030 initiative. Um, And that initiative applies to all 32,000 golf facilities around the world, not just 10 open venues or the 200 links courses that that we see around our coastlines. Uh, So we recognise that there is a challenge there, but we also recognise that there are opportunities for courses, uh, coastal courses to maybe diversify their offering, um, to look longer term at how they adapt the golf course to, to meet the challenges of the changing coastline. So a lot of it is about being aware of the issues uh, and secondly, being prepared to do something to try and address them. I'm concerned. I think my main concern is the lack of awareness and recognition uh, of golf clubs and probably sports clubs in general of what's coming our way. And unless you're aware of that, how can you prepare? Um, so it's, it's, it's a knowledge uh, exercise to start off with. Make sure that you know what's going to be happening at your facility over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You might not live to see it, but your children, your grandchildren will not be able to enjoy the facilities that we've had great fun on if we don't look at these issues now and look to try and find solutions to address some of the problems that we're going to face. So it's getting to boards, it's getting to committees, and that might have to be done through the staff, through the club managers, the general managers, the greenkeepers. But with the backing of the RNA, with the backing of the national governing bodies of the game, with the backing of the professional associations, I think that's a strong body of stakeholders who can really encourage golfers and golf clubs to get engaged with this action. So the challenges of climate change are nothing new and the human race is very good at adapting to change and I'm sure we'll see something similar happening with our Lynx courses. There are those in golf who feel this isn't climate change, it's just high tides, strong winds and reckless dog walkers, simple dune erosion. Here's Richard Black from ECIU to explain. Well, for sure, sand dunes always have been eroded, they always have been formed and they've always moved. It's just that climate change makes some of the reasons why they get eroded a little bit more likely to happen. So, for example, high tides is a thing. Well, the sea sea level is rising under climate change, so every the sea will be higher all the time, therefore the higher tides will be will be higher. Um, one of the projected impacts of climate change is bigger waves. So you have bigger waves impacting the shore more often. Um, another one is stronger storms. So you can see climate change doesn't really bring anything totally new into the picture. It just amplifies all those things that are already and always have been affecting sand dunes. Erosion is just one of the challenges facing golf. It's parkland golf, it's all types of golf. Maintaining the grass itself, keeping those manicured surfaces as immaculate as ever, is proving tricky. Climate change puts such pressure on resources. 
Dom Goggins again. Water is obviously a massive part of maintaining a golf course. And if you've got water shortages, like serious water shortages, then it's kind of hard to expect, you know, for it to be okay to use huge amounts of water to irrigate a golf course when a farmer doesn't have the water to irrigate their land and provide food for communities. It depends on where you are as a golf course, obviously. And some courses, some parts of the world will actually see benefits from climate change, improved growing conditions for turf. For others, it'll be more of a challenge, whether that be from too much rain uh, and potential flooding, from not enough rain and potential drought issues, or just other extremes of weather. But this is combined with other challenges. Water scarcity is a big global problem. And another issue that clubs down in southeast England are going to have to be aware of and contend with over coming decades. Uh, increases in disease pressure uh, through milder, wetter winters or insect pest pressure come the following spring is going to be a bigger problem than it is now because we're seeing fewer and fewer pesticides being approved by the regulators. So again, we've recognised all of these issues. We have 14 Golf Course 2030 projects on the go at the moment, uh, and many of them are trying to find solutions to those problems. Solutions. That's what this series is about as much as the problems. And while governing bodies such as the RNA search for those solutions, we have a chance. If, that is, the golfing community works as one. The quick wins basically are implementing known best practice. A lot of greenkeepers are excellent at what they do, but they don't all implement best practice as we know it. Uh, And there are plenty of good pieces of good greenkeeping practices that could be implemented that might resolve quite a number of the, the issues that we're going to face over the next five to ten years. Such as? Well, certainly in terms of, say, disease pressures, quite a lot of what we do in turf management puts a lot of stress on the turf. And there are simple things we could do which wouldn't have too great an impact on playability that would relieve that stress uh, and make the grasses less prone to disease attack. If we can look to a future where golf clubs invest in renewable energies, golf course maintenance machinery that that runs on cleaner fuels will be reducing the emissions that we put out there in terms of our course management and really gaining the benefit of that carbon sequestration from all of all of the trees and the grasslands and all of the other vegetation that grows on the golf courses what's happening at the open venues yeah we we have a, a sustainable development program for uh, the open championship which is called green links and that covers all aspects of staging uh, includes the venue uh, all of our open venues are geo certified uh, which is a, a golf accreditation uh, for good sustainable practice but specifically in terms of Royal Port Rush, we introduced our water uh, initiative, uh, which removed single-use plastic bottles for water provision at the open. And that removed something like 140,000 single-use plastic bottles. On top of that, we're looking at things like our energy provision. Uh, Can we transition to cleaner, uh, more renewable sources? We're looking at our transport solutions in terms of park and ride buses, in terms of the hospitality vehicles that we use. Again, can we move to cleaner sources of energy for those? And simple things like, like the catering, local sourcing of produce is a great way to reduce a carbon footprint because it obviously reduces the haulage 
uh, of those foodstuffs around the country. This sounds like it's very important to the RNA, Steve. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the pillars uh, of our strategy. Um, and it's very important to us. And it's very important that what we're doing is seen to be credible uh, and that we're seen to be really committed to the sustainability cause. Uh, I think there is a great danger when people throw out initiatives here and there uh, that they can be accused of greenwash if they can't actually substantiate it through, through positive action. Positive action. It's so important. The PGA Euro Pro Tour agrees. Players get a reusable water bottle at the start of each season and have top-up facilities around the courses. Those plastic tees are on the way out too. Bamboo, if you hadn't heard, is the future there. But what are the pro golfers themselves? Are they into this at all? Jos Sluten uh, in the Netherlands supported a, a Netherlands Golf Federation program working with their equivalent of the RSPB on, on birds and wildlife. And just recently, Suzanne Pettersen has signed an agreement with the GO Foundation to work with them on promoting sustainability. So yes, that, that is an angle that needs to be looked at, but not necessarily just professional golfers. Uh, there are lots of well-known people who play the game and are potentially a source to tap into to help us promote uh, the work that we're doing. We're fortunate at the RNA in that we operate through our affiliates, who are the national governing bodies of golf around the globe. Uh, I think we have over 145 countries where we have an affiliate who can spread our message for us. Um, so so that, that's very useful. Um, but again, in the sustainability world, there's a lot of work to be done to engage more of our affiliates to really get interested in sustainability. And again, I'm hopeful that our Golf Course 2030 initiative will help raise the awareness of all of these issues and people's commitment to work with us to find solutions. It would be all too easy for prominent sports governing bodies to shrink into the shadows on this. But the RNA, thanks to Steve Isaac there, has stood above the fairway lookout tower. It wants to be seen, it wants to be open, it wants to be honest. Richard Black again. Yes, I think it's very encouraging and I think it really is essential. And obviously the more that um, the operators and owners of golf courses talk to each other, then the easier they're going to find it because the more ideas they're they're going to share. Next time, the snow go zone and the threat to winter sports. This just isn't sustainable. So I have to come up with a different way to do my sport and look at the world. And I don't think that's depressing. I don't don't mean to sound depressing at all because I don't think it is depressing. I think it's exciting. The big snow seasons are less frequent, less regular. Everybody's a little concerned. One day we're going to draw a blank and it won't snow. Make sure you find us on Twitter and Insta at Planet Sport Pod. Keep the conversation going online. There are eight episodes in the series and they're all available right now as sport steps up on climate. Sport is played and watched by a lot of people and working together, the sporting sector can really make an impact on the climate change and sustainability world. Emergency on Planet Sport is a 9419 production for Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit.